Honestly, it's probably how I feel about certain couples. Um, I would say off the rip, Daniel Craig and Rachel Weiss. Like, I am definitely trying to be a third up in there. I am. I'm trying to slip oh. right up in there be like, mm-hmm. hey. And, you know, my stance right now is a fuck no in general because people are weird. But them too. Yes. I'll there be are like, exceptions. Yes. I'll be like, you know, for one night. For one night, I'll do it. Exactly. Just <laughs> something to write in your next memoir for sure. Right. What's up, my bi's and allies, and welcome back to another episode of Bisexual Behavior. I'm your host, Talia Cass, and I've got another great episode for you. Uh, I know I say that every month, but I'm so excited for this interview. I got to talk to Clarkisha Kent. She is a writer, culture critic, and author of Fat On, Fat Off, A Big Bitch Manifesto. We had such a great conversation. We talked about what it means to have thoughtful representation in media, the effects of fat phobia, and Clarkisha's experience as a bisexual, disabled, black African woman. And her book in the audio version is actually available now, so you can get it wherever you get books, um, Amazon, independent stores. I highly recommend. I loved her book. So we did have some technical issues with this interview. Um, At one point, one of us lost um, Wi-Fi, so the interview cut off about 10 minutes early, which isn't a big deal. You still get the bulk of the interview, and it's amazing. But keep listening, because I actually got a really inspiring story from a listener about coming out as bisexual to everyone but his gay father. I wanted to share it because it's a powerful example of biphobia coming from all sides and how religion can play a big factor in someone's coming out journey. And I just thought, a lot of you um, could relate to it and again I love hearing from listeners so if you have any stories you want to share feel free to email at um, bisexualbehaviorpod at gmail.com but again keep listening that will be toward the end of the episode and yeah so I'm so excited to share this one with you but without further ado here's Clarkisha. Clarkisha! Welcome to Bisexual Behavior. Hi, thank you so much for having me, Talia. Oh, of course. I'm so excited to have you. Um, as I was saying before, I love your book. Um, the audio book just went on sale as well. So anybody who's listening can go ahead and purchase your book. Um, but we'll dive into that and talk a lot more about that. But first, I just want to get some introductions going just so everyone knows you know, who we are. So feel free to follow my format. My name is Talia. My pronouns are she, her. I am bisexual and cis and white. What about you? Um, so I'm Clarkisha Kent. Pronouns are also she, her, hers. I am Black, specifically Nigerian-American. Shout out to us. Um, and I am bisexual and also demisexual. Nice. So uh, for listeners who are unaware, because we talk a lot about bisexuality, could you explain a little bit about what demisexuality is for those who okay so i'm gonna be honest to all the gays out there you know i am a wayward gay a lot of times so sometimes these definitions be fluctuating for even me but my understanding of demisexuality as i illustrate on my book as well is that you know there has to be some sort of like intense like emotional connection Uh, like for me i really have to be like vibing with you for me to feel any like 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 legitimate like sexual like feelings for you um, you know, I can agree that someone is, you know, aesthetically hot. Like I can, I can recognize when someone is attractive, but if they were to come up to me and be like, you know, let's do some, I'd be like, no, I don't know you like that. <laughs> you know, I don't know you like that. <laughs> so yeah, that's no, kind of that my, like, my Yeah. Like, I don't know you like that. Sorry. I, uh, I've heard a lot of people using uh demisexual a lot more recently, and I feel like it's becoming a lot more common and just like. It really makes sense. Like it's not like you necessarily want to jump the bones of someone that you don't know at all. So it's I feel like it it really does make sense. It's um so listeners, if you're unaware, I definitely recommend you research it. Um it might be something that resonates with you. So so thank you for sharing that. But um sure. before we get started, you are a published writer. You um just yeah. released a memoir and I wanna talk about that. So do you wanna get just give like a quick like synopsis of the book and where you can find it? Um, yes. So, um, fat off, fat on is for me, it is my story, right? Um, Clarkisha's story, but also it's a story about like collective stories. I should say a collection of stories about, um, how truly sinister fat phobia is in particular. 
um, in the fact that it's not like simple name calling, like people like to think it's, that's a very elementary understanding of fat phobia. Fat phobia is a very sophisticated, oppressive system, just like racism, just like misogyny, um, homophobia, transphobia. It's very sophisticated and it evolves um, and transforms just like system of oppressions do. So I wanted to use my personal story to really um, run the through line through that. Because, you know, people don't like to be talked at. And sometimes you throw too much verbiage and terms and definitions at people. You know, sometimes people's ears start closing. Um, that's not necessarily right, but, you know, you got to meet people where they're at. So um, that's kind of so what true. my story is about. And through my story, you know, I tackle, you know, fat phobia and its connection to purity culture, its connection to homophobia, its connection to racism, misogyny, colorism, texturism, you know, everything. It touches everything. So I wanted to use my stories to kind of highlight that connection. Um, with Feminist Press, that's a publisher book, you know, shout out to them and my editor, especially uh, Miss um, Lauren Rosemary Hook. Um, you can also get it from, try to get it from like indie shops because we we don't really want to give Amazon money. But, you know, if you're positioned where that's you right. can, I get it. I understand. I ain't gonna judge you. But, you know, try, if it's possible, try the indie shops first. Definitely. And one thing I really love about your book is that you talk about a lot of the intersectionalities between, you know, fat phobia and how it ties in with racism and especially homophobia. So we'll definitely talk a lot more about that. But one of the first themes that you started talking about, you open in your book talking about how you love scrubs and you specifically talk about Dr. Cox, who was one of my favorite characters as well. And you were saying, you know, it would have been so great to just have a black version of Dr. Cox. And then you go into talking about how, you know, representation isn't great if you're just putting different faces on there and different races, that there's Absolutely. a lot more to having really accurate and good representation. And I wanted to ask you, you know, what goes into having really great ideal representation? Um, and then if you want to talk a little bit about the Kent test, um, which you are, you created, which is really awesome. So yeah. Um, so good representation is a very tricky you know, people hear the word good and they then they try to they try to start assigning like morality to it. So now, like if you go look at like the newer versions of my test, right, you'll see that I changed good to like thoughtful. Um, and I thought it was like important to make that distinction because um, there's like for you to have thoughtful representation of a character. Like if you're thinking about, you know, really strong characters in general. Um, some of these more popular characters, like, let me throw out, like, uh, IDK. Uh, Darth Vader. Like, we know he's a villain, right? But, like, people really love that character, you know, because he's been built up in a way that's not necessarily good, right? Um, but very, very complex. And that's kind of, like, characters like him and others is what I think about when I think about, like, very thoughtful or thorough representation. We're not asking for this person to be good necessarily, but when you're designing this character, like, I want to know that you put, like, actual work to bring this character to screen, and it's not, like, this one-dimensional, one-dimensional projection of your own, like, biases onto, like, a TV screen, you know, or film screen, because, you know, audiences are smarter than people think, so a lot of the times we can like look at certain characters and really see like the biases or the bigotries, right, of the the creator, like just on screen and they just think we don't notice and it's it's weird. But yeah, I just for me when I think about good representation, I'm thinking about characters that you give a fuck about because the way that they've been written has been very thorough. So even if you don't personally fuck with that character, like you don't care for their politics, da, 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 like this is still to you, like, you know what? But they still ate, like they really wrote this character out. And that's kind of what I want for other characters, especially if they happen to be marginalized. Um, you know, I consider it very, uh, you know, bigotry aside, I consider it very lazy, like very lazy work when I'm seeing a character that's just, like we just we just didn't try not only is your bigotry shown but you also just didn't try so that's kind of what i think about when i mean um 
you know, good representation. And then um, for the test, the Kent test, I would love to discuss, are there any specific questions you wanted to ask or do you want me to just kind of go off the rip about the Kent test? Oh, go off the rip. Uh, yeah, give an overview. Um, I'd also love to hear, um, you know, any particular media that you think was really thoughtful in their representation and that um, scored very high in the Kent test as well. Okay, well, let me pull up the Kent test because, you know, even sometimes I myself need a refresher. Um, so off the rip, though, the Kent test is like a media limits test that is designed to determine whether a film or any other piece of media has provided the audience with thoughtful representation of Black women and or women of color. Again, this is like a jump off point. Like it's not supposed to be the be all and all for media criticism. I would never claim to have all of those answers because that's, I can't do that. No, I don't, I don't know that much. Still learning, still learning like everyone else. Um, but yeah, it's a test that was designed to really kind of, um, you know, put some of these characters, you know, if you're a black woman or a woman of color, put some of these characters under the microscope so we can really see, like I mentioned, how much of your biases are coming into play when you're writing these characters. And the most important thing about this test for me is that I made sure it wasn't a pass or fail thing. Um, when people <laughs> bring up, you know, the obviously the Bechdel test is a predecessor, right? And when people bring right. up that test, they always harp on the pass or fail option. Because, you know, people's egos can't handle being called failures. So for me, True. when I was, you know, yeah, when I was making, you know, because they hear that and then they stop listening, you know, because exactly. yeah, they're shallow like that. So um, for the Kent test, I was like, you know what, I'm not going to go in that route because I know how people could be. So we'll we'll put it on a scale, we'll put it on a scale so that like you can really kind of see in real time where you are. So if obviously if you get a zero, then yes, you failed. Like what? <laughs> like you can see it's a zero, it's a zero percent. Like you should um, feel bad at that point. Right. Yeah. Cause you know, you, you had like eight to 10 points to do better. You got zero. That's bad. Right. Um, but when you're getting, let's say you get like a four or five, you could be like, okay, like I'm on the right track, but clearly it's some stuff I have to sit down and unlearn because my, again, my biases have stopped me from getting that seven or that eight or whatever. Um, I think a good example for me in terms of stuff that's passed or not passed, or maybe got this score, that score is I was doing for a while. Um, Twitter had this um, program um, for creators where it was like the Twitter spaces thing. It was like the thing that like made spaces like popular. Um, they plucked a couple of us, um, who either, you know, who are verified, right? Let's be honest about that, who are verified or had like some specific knowledge in their field um, to lead these like spaces. So we had a whole program for like a couple, couple months. And for me, I decided to do like Kent test space. So I was like, in these spaces, we'll talk about media who passes, who doesn't pass, who like gets it right, kind of, that kind of thing. So in these spaces at some point, I discussed The Witcher. So we had the first and the second season. First season was not a failure. But it was like, that. it was stuff that they did that was good. And then the stuff that they did was very questionable. Um, so I think the first season got like a four or five. It was like middle of the road, um, a middle of the road score on the test. Um, and then their second season, they came back. And that second season, I think was like a seven or eight. Like it's much higher um, so they, I think they listened to the criticisms um, of like the general audience and then they tried to like do better. Um, I know there are people out there who rightfully have a lot of issues with The Witcher and how it's played out in the adaptation because there are people who play the games. They're like, mm. and I'm like, I get it. I do. I do. Um, but personally, if I'm just judging by like what I've seen on TV, I would say that season two was an improvement. But obviously take that as a grain of salt because I haven't played the game. So I'll be honest. Yeah, about that. right. I haven't but, either. I've been wanting to watch the show. I heard it's good. So yeah. Um, so those are examples um, for things that pass the Kent test off the rip. Um, Widows, love that movie. Y'all should watch it. Criminally underrated. They did not do the promo justice. Um, they tried to go like high prestige with the ads, and I'm like, this is a fucking heist movie. Just say that it's a heist movie. It's okay. I love a good heist movie. You know. 
like who doesn't like you like stating the actual genre it is is not going to take away from the movie movie's still great um but yeah widows off the rip um black panther one um black panther actually came out was it 20 when did this test come out was it 2016 20 i'm sorry time is now flat circle um it really is yeah, by the time the test came out, I think I had been kind of like really obsessed with Black Panther, but I don't, I don't remember exactly. I got to go back and look at those dates. But yeah, um, it was one. It was still one of the first movies I tested on it. So yeah, Black Panther. Um, uh, yeah, Black Panther Widows. Um, I think if I remember correctly, I think Invincible also scored pretty high. Um, I I couldn't give it all of the points because i didn't like how they treated amber um but if we're talking about um mark's mom like the principal character's mother um in that show um i think debbie was a really great great female character in that show um so i think that did pretty well there's a couple other examples but um if people are interested i started grading some movies um on my website so you can actually go to my website um www.clarkishacantalk.com and then you'll see like the Kent test tab and there are movies that I have rated so you can actually go through and click through um some of them I was able to link the like testing that I did some of them I wasn't but cool yeah I'll um include that in the show notes as well so um so you must be every time you watch something are you like in your head like kind of doing your own Kent test even if you weren't planning on initially doing that Yes, I definitely am. It's unfortunately something I can't technically turn off. Um, yeah, but, I imagine. You know, uh, yes, uh, you know, need you know, like when you're media trained in terms of like media analysis is not something that you can just. Uh, but that said, you know, depending on the project and where it's coming from, I'll still like you know, I'll still enjoy it while like having those notes in my head. But yeah, it's you know definitely tough. How do you think it would have affected you if you saw better representation growing up in general? Oh, I think that a lot of the BS that I went through, um, even personally, I might not have readily tolerated. Um, I think people really underestimate um, the influence that like, like good and thoughtful representation can have on like the individual person. I think people always want to assume they really believe that they can't be easily influenced or brainwashed or whatever. And I'm like, baby, I got some news for you. You are not as special as you think, <laughs> you know? You're like, influenced every day. <laughs> thank you, right? So um, I think that's my thing. I feel like, you know, if, um, yeah, if, if people really understood the uh, propaganda part of media, they might be a little bit more concerned than they actually are. Um, I think that's like even why. Else- yes, oh, go sorry. Ahead. Go ahead. No, so that's why I quote <laughs> Bell Hooks a lot in my book because she, as a you know, as a media critic herself, like she really does a lot to keep going back to the fact that you know a lot of these films, a lot of these movies are you know propaganda arms for this country, but people don't, you know people don't want to think about that. Like for example, I love the original Top Gun. I get it. That is a propaganda film through and through, though. <laughs> oh, my like, God. <laughs> well, I don't want to hear that. You know, it's just, you know, the planes and the explosions. And, da, 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 da. and I'm like, I get it. I get it. I get it. Well, again, it's we should be thinking you about it. You can enjoy it, but also criticize it. And, yeah, like, you know, we you know be hope that it can things. be better. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, but people don't want to do that, that second part. Like, you know, I, I enjoy it. Therefore, it's not bad. And I'm like, again. I have news for you. <laughs> so notice even like seeing movies from when we were growing up, um, like I feel like the way that they bash characters for their weight and just the fat phobia that was just embedded into every single movie that you see and just like how that fed into like diet culture and beauty products and how you're sold things to make yourself feel better about what you just saw on this show that just told you that you're fat. And it's just like, I, I feel like 
they're they're trying to be better about it now, but I feel like it's still there's so much harmful like fat phobia that's happening to this day. Even like they're using it in wellness culture as well. So it's just interesting that you're talking about like criticizing media, and I think it's so easy for us all to be influenced. But I think it's important for everyone to take a step back and be like, wait, why is that? Why did they say it like that? Why is this character treated this way? So I think it's very yeah. important. Um, yeah, it's uh. That phobia is bad, but like you know, mm-hmm. it's it's not even something that's necessarily necessarily ever went away. It's just mm-hmm. like evolved, um, you know. Right, they I, got smarter with the messaging. Thank you. Yeah, and I'm yeah. glad you mentioned the wellness aspect because, like, if you're really listening, you can you can hear the words in between what they're saying. You can hear that hidden language, like cleanses, detoxes, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. Like you start hearing that stuff, you're like, but what do you mean by that? So. You have you really have to constantly be critiquing and analyzing what you're he what you hear and what you see, because um, you know they'll they'll hide it behind certain language, but the message is still always there. It's still always the same. Yeah, absolutely. And even so, something I think about a lot is how I would have felt very differently about my sexuality if there was a lot more queer representation in media, for example. Um, so I'm curious about how. Um, you know, how that would have affected you as well and like how that would impact your queer journey and maybe if there's any media representation that you saw that did help you along the way. Um, so I would say, yeah, I'm on the same page with you where like if I saw it more, it would have been just normal to me. Um, especially if we're talking about black queer representation. Um, it's, you know, it's still there, right? You know, in the early aughts, I remember um, Set It Off had Queen Latifah um, and her lovely girlfriend in it, even though her girlfriend didn't say a single word, that was very weird. But, <laughs> but you know, that oh, was true, still, right? That was still, you know, that was still her girl. And I remember it's one of the early examples I saw of like you know black queer um, love, and I was just like, huh, I never seen this before. Um, and you know, it is tough for us to get that kind of thing to screen because you know. Um, powers that be <laughs> when it comes to like producing or funding like they you know they make sure that uh, you know it's really it's nearly impossible to get that stuff to screen um, I remember was, I think it's F. Gary Grace who directed that film and um, I don't remember the exact budget he got for it because you know I'd have to look it up but um, to me it was like the equivalent of like three dollars and a paper clip like he did not get much money for that film so, you know, that's kind of the thing that creators, like, those are the obstacles we have to face to get that kind of stuff to screen. Um, but, yeah, I just think that, uh, yeah, I definitely, things might have been different for me. I might have, like you mentioned, come into my sexuality much um, sooner if I had known better and I had seen more of it. Um, you know, I talk about that a little in the book where I'm just like, it wasn't, especially when I'm talking about black queer people, it's not, not something I saw, um, as much. Um, right. Yeah. And I feel like the queer representation, like, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I said, and I understand it too. There's a risk to, you know, being out like that. So. Yeah, no, there's definitely a risk, but I feel like a lot of the representation we saw was like pitting bisexual people as like finicky or they're slutty or they're like dating multiple people at once and it wasn't ever like something that was actually relatable but um I want to take a little bit of a step back I'm meant to ask you much earlier we're now 20 minutes into the episode but Clarkisha what is your most bisexual behavior my most bisexual behavior honestly it's probably how I feel about certain couples um I would say off the rip Daniel Craig and Rachel Weiss like I am definitely trying to be a third up in there. I am. I'm trying to slip oh, right up in there and be mm-hmm. like, hey, hey, what's going on? I mean, that's a that's a beautiful couple. Like um, there's also uh was it Tiana Tiana Taylor and her husband, uh Amani Schubert. I'm trying to be up in there too. I'm trying to be up mm. in there too. I'm like, hey girl, what's up? So that's what I would say. Like, I definitely have some couples in my head where I'm like, if they ask me, I would definitely say yes. Um, and you know, my stance right now is a fuck no in general because people are weird, but them too. Yes. I'll there be are like, exceptions. Yes. I'll be like, you know, for one night, for one night, I'll do it. Exactly. Just <laughs> something to write in your next memoir for sure. Right. I'll be like, yeah, it's a good night. 
<laughs> so Clarkisha, something you talked about in your book as well is um, having girl crushes, which is like, as soon as I read that, I was like, oh my God, that was like with my friends. I was like, oh, I really have a girl crush on her. And I feel like that's like the equivalent of a guy saying, oh, you, I no want to hug you. No homo. No homo though. <laughs> yeah, no homo, no homo. <laughs> It's like the the equivalent for sure. And I'm like curious. So because what you're talking about is saying like you have a girl crush kind of eliminates you feeling like, oh, my God, that was a gay feeling I just had. So if you want to talk about that a little bit more and like how that affected you like into your queerness. Yeah. So them early 2000s, as we know, was rough, rough on everybody. Fashion, especially it was it was just it was it was weird out here. So. Um, For me, you know, to kind of find this middle ground between clearly like my higher self realizing I'm fucking gay versus like me growing up in this oppressive, you know, Christian household, you know, using that term and terminology girl crush was really helpful in terms of carving out that space to kind of let my attractions fly. Right. So Mm -hmm. um as problematic as the word would probably be today, <laughs> I think it was important um, in that moment in time for those of us who were struggling to get to those points to find the actual verbiage um, to exercise some sort of um, gender free, like freedom in terms of gender expression or sexuality. Um, mm-hmm. So that's why I'm like, I'm not, you know. I I would never demonize that term. I'm like, it let me do what I need to do at the time you know, to, so to true. really, yeah, to really start to flex the muscle that is, you know, freeing myself from these um, gender essentialist notions of, you know, being, you know, just existing. Mm-hmm. For sure. I wonder all those people that I talk to about my girl crushes and their girl crushes, where they are now and if they're, they ever realized that they were queer. Right. <laughs> I, I, I wonder that a lot too. Like, does she know that she was bisexual? I don't know. <laughs> If I see her get my ass, you know, like, I don't know. <laughs> I'm still yeah. waiting for my high school friends to admit that they're queer. But, you know, one day, one day we'll see. Oh, yeah. But <laughs> so now that you're, you know, you're growing into your queerness and you're now um, entering queer spaces. So I'm curious about, you know, what is your experience like being in queer spaces? Do you still feel like there's. Well, for example, one thing I've noticed kind of as I've come out and come to terms with bisexuality and gone into more queer spaces is that it's a lot of it's very whitewashed and that I feel like there's a lot of people that since they're marginalized in a smaller way that that kind of makes them feel like they can relate to everyone. Right. Or like they don't realize that their spaces aren't necessarily safe still to everyone, even if it's a queer space. Do you feel like that's something that you experienced? Do you feel like within the queer community, there's still a lot of fat phobia? Um, Yeah, definitely lots of fat phobia, lots of colorism too. Um, I I mentioned that in my book, but it was, for me, it made dating um, as a queer black woman, definitely an extreme sport. So then it, it, it turned it to, it turned into where I had to like, limit I had to limit myself I had to limit myself and my own options to protect myself um from certain people um especially fetishists um you know um there's I can't I don't remember um but there's there's a word my trans girlfriend uses that's just so accurate to like people who just like pray I'm more marginalized people just like like watching and trying to pluck them from the greater herd it's really weird um but um yeah, I would say because of things like that, I've kind of stuck to like a a black queer crowd because, you know, yeah. we're kind of the only ones who understand each other and what, what it's like to kind of move through the world um, and, and have people be really weird about your sexuality because people already have a very strange, especially they're not black, right? Very strange relationship mm-hmm. to our blackness. So by proxy, they're going to not, comprehend how how we do queer you know so right it's it's a different it's a very different queer and it's not like like I can't relate to your queer experience because mine is very different at the end of the day and I feel like people don't like think about that and they just you know and they don't want to you know it's like you know they want to kind of flatten our differences which I always think once again is a lazy way to do solidarity you don't have to flatten it we are different Mm -hmm. and we can still have like common goals like, I don't understand why people want other people to be as homogenous as they are, but that's, again, right. discussion for another day. <laughs> <laughs> but 
But I feel like that's the beauty of our community is that people have very different experiences, but we're all kind of here together. We're all queer and that like all these different experiences is what makes us such a vibrant community. And I think like people, you know, focus on, I don't know, kind of condensing that experience into yes. one palatable thing. Condensing for, is a very good word. Yep. Yeah, yeah, that's a very good word. Yeah. So yeah, I was curious about how that like affects you and whatnot. But um, one other thing you talk a lot about in your book is is healing. I mean, it must have been really tough writing your own story and kind of re-exposing yourself to those things that you went through. Um, so what kind of ways did you have to like take care of yourself as you're writing your own story? Um, so I've been saying on every like show I've appeared on, I'll say it again here. Um, it was very important for me at the time to have a therapist and psychiatrist um, on deck as I went through um, this process. I was very, very lucky, very blessed to have the money at the time to afford these things, right? Um, which is why it should all be free, okay? Free, no, free, seriously. Free healthcare for everybody, free healthcare for everybody. Like, we should have a patient. I very Anyways, for that. Um, at that point, you know, I had a psychiatrist, I had a psychologist. So when I got through a very like harrowing or traumatic chapter, I would just hop on the phone. I'm like, Hey girl, so you got space for your schedule this week? Like if not this week, the next week, you know, so that's kind of how I did it. And then I would, you know, essentially take that chapter to my psychiatrist or psychologist and we would talk Mm -hmm. and then I would put it to bed and then, you know, and then write the next chapter or segment. Um, But it was very important for me to, like, surround myself with mental health professionals at the time. um, Because, you know, I had to do some deep diving, and a lot of it was dark. So, Mm -hmm. um, again, I'm very, very thankful that um, I was able to, again, afford that at the time. That's so great. And did you have, like, trouble finding the right therapist for you? I feel like a lot of people that I've spoken to struggle finding, like, someone who relates to their experience. Um, You know, the way this country set up is the fucking Ponzi scheme and the Ponzi scheme is just also all paperwork. So um, it's weird. Cause even if you do have insurance, like they funneled you into these like terrible doctors in their offices. Um, and you know, a lot of these doctors are concerned with just like the bottom line. Um, and sometimes you can't blame them because of how the healthcare system is set up. That said, they're not blameless. Right. So, right. Um, yeah, so it's just weird in that, you know, they'll be like, oh, this is your primary care doctor, and they'll do the referral for you. And I'm like, mm, no. So obviously, it costs me more money to say, fuck that. Um, but I definitely had to be on the hunt. Like, I was on the Psychology Today page, just searching, 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 searching about my location or the next city over, um, looking at their rates per hour. Um, looking at their specialties, like people kind of gloss over that, but that's important. Like if a doctor is telling you, hey, I don't do people with personality disorders, you got to respect that. You can't come up in there and then be mad at them that they can't help you. They they said that right. in their their bio. You have you do have to read those things, right? So yeah, it's not beneficial for anyone to try. Right, right. So, um, yeah, so you have to look at those things and you have to cross check um, with where they are you know, race too, right? People like, they don't like to mention that, but race, I looked for a black therapist and psychiatrist. Of course. So um, race, gender, um, then also if you you care about religion, you got to look into that. Um, Obviously, I had to find someone who fuck with gay people because I'm not finna be in your office if you homophobic as fuck. That's weird. Homophobic or transphobic. I don't want to be looking at you. Um, Yeah, no, thank you. Yeah, it, it, it was tough. It was tough. And, you know, um, because how tough it is and the fact that it's not free, a lot of people, not they're not built for it. They're like, it was too tiring. And I'm like, I understand. It's a process. You know, you can't just log in and be like, I'll pick that one. No, you have to really go at it. And then I also had, you know, I shared it some, I think a year or two ago, and I have to find it. But I also had criteria even for my black therapist. So I'd be like, okay, it's great that I found, you know, a black therapist, but let's hear your politics. So there were like certain questions I would ask again about sexuality, um, about for me, colorism and texturism, because that's important to me. I'm not sitting in your office if you're a colorist, because you are automatically not going to understand the events that have transpired in my life, you know? Um, So I asked about that. And then I asked about a host of other things, but I even had criteria for them. 
So even when you think you found your person, you still have to be like, okay, so what do you think about this? Because again, if they're not even prepared for those little questions, then um, it's not worth sitting in their office and then getting traumatized by them. Because that happens too. Like you do the yeah. right thing, you look for therapists, whatever. Then you get into their office and they just acted crazy to you. Now you're traumatized. <laughs> you know, now you're traumatized. You right. want to go back. So, you know, um, my sister had a thing where like she had, again, successfully found a therapist. But like she asked like one or two questions and like the therapist like tweaked on her. Like, like she, yeah. because she couldn't answer those questions in a way that was thoughtful and intelligent. Then she got wild with my sister. And my sister was like, you know what? I'm actually glad I asked you this because it told me everything I need to know. You know, if you can't handle this simple question, you're not going to be able to handle half of the trauma I bring to your office. So, you know, you know, she managed to, you know, avert that. But like, imagine all the people who, you know, they run into that and then don't know how to, you know, kind of navigate afterwards. So, yeah. Absolutely. It was tough. It was tough. I can imagine it's also I feel like that's why it's so important to kind of look at it in a preventative way because I feel like if you're in crisis like it's going to be so hard to go through all of that I think when I first started going to a therapist I was like deep in an eating disorder and literally would just take whatever I could get and the person I got was like great at the time but when I was starting to come out and like was talking about you know coming out while I was in you know with a man in hetero relationship and he wasn't like necessarily super accepting of it and like my therapist just didn't really know how to handle that. And I think she tried her best in the moment, but it's, that's why it's so important to find the right person. I just feel like it makes it so inaccessible to a lot of people, which is so unfortunate. Yeah. Do you have any like recommendations for say if someone can't afford therapy, what other ways can they work on kind of protecting themselves or healing any kind of trauma? I would say and a lot of people, they're not going to like this because it's going to require some self-awareness. You need to talk to your community. Um, and when I say community, your immediate community, which is your friends slash support system. Now, obviously, I'm going to put an asterisk next to it because sometimes we have friends that enable us and aren't good for us. So you, when sure. I'm saying this, y'all have to take that into consideration. But if you're in a situation and you're blessed enough to have friends that you respect who aren't on any bullshit, then you're going to have to ask them. Because sometimes when you're in the shit, you can't see it, right? So you a fish, fish is in the water. They don't know they're out of the water. You know, if you take them out of the water, then they're like, oh, shit, I'm not in the water anymore. So you have to really be paying attention, right? So I would ask, you know, your friends and be like, hey, are there some things or maybe... I'll use, I'll use this example. Are there some coping mechanisms of mine that you think may be concerning? Like, if you really want to start doing some, like, healing work, you're going to have to start asking some hard questions because guess what? Who The people who you would usually ask this or who would ask you, the therapists, right now aren't accessible. So, you know, ask that friend that you do really fuck with, that you do really trust. Like, hey, girl, like, now no bullshit. Is this a thing I need to be working on? Um, if they love you and respect you, they will tell you so. Sometimes, again, if you're around people who they believe they won't. So, you all, again, you have to consider that. But if you know someone you trust who you know will be real with you, then I would start there. After that, then I would look into, I hate saying self, self-help books, um, but some of these books are there, out there do fall under the category. Um, I would say, I think, what was it? It's like a, I don't remember the exact title, but it's a book um, for like the children of uh, emotionally immature parents. I think that's part of the title. Um, Yeah, I I know what you're talking about. Yeah, Yeah, I've heard that that's a great book. Yeah, that's a good book. Um, Now the author of this other book is, I apparently found out later, was Demon Spawn. So obviously take this with a grain of salt, everybody. But um, I think The Body Keeps the Score is another important one. Um, But once again asterisk because you know what i've read recently is that some of the things discussed in those books the the conclusions that they came to while correct like the mythology that like the methodology that was used to get there was not kosher so i i recommend Uh, people kind of yeah i recommend people you know kind of beware of that but that said it's it's an important book so um yeah those are the two i recommend but also like i mentioned you know 
start asking the people that you really fuck with whether you know there's some stuff that you need to address you know not just maybe in that particular relationship but with yourself too yeah and like a true friend will really be honest with you you know at the end of the day that they'll 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 want to help you so they'll be willing to be honest but do you feel like writing your book was part of like helping heal healing your inner child I've been hearing that term a lot lately and I feel like it actually is so meaningful and I also feel like it is a part of healing trauma is like healing your inner child. And so, yeah, how does that come into play with writing your book? Um, you know, I mean, yeah, it's important. You know, people operate from their trauma and they were traumatized. What? As children. Like, of course, that's going to come mm-hmm. into play. Um, but right. yeah, writing my book definitely helped. I will say that um, I processed via writing. Um, you know, the mm-hmm. way I illustrated in an interview yesterday, I was like, let's say you're in my head and you got idea A and idea B, right? Clearly to the outside, to you, the outside person, these ideas are connected, but I'm not going to, me, I'm not going to realize that until I start writing. So then when I start writing, I'm like, oh shit, these are, you know, these are connected. Um, but that doesn't happen until, you know, I sit down, um, you know, at my computer, start typing or I get a pen and, you know, pen, pencil, start writing. Um, so for mm-hmm. me, you know, writing the memoir was helpful in that it, it connected a lot of dots in terms of like where my family was concerned. And, you know, and my role on those dots, you know, because uh, I showed up at a very um, peculiar time for my family. And literally, as I was born, a lot of things went left. A lot of things were revealed. <laughs> like, you know, the right. whole, like, you know, like a effect that happened. Um, so I would say it was important for that reason. Um, but also important in terms of figuring out some of the coping mechanisms I had to um, really address within myself. Um, so yeah, it was very, very self-reflective. Um, and you know, I'm that much more better for it. That's awesome. And I could even like tell in your writing, just like, cause you kind of like trickle in some humor in, in your writing. And I think that's like, obviously just the style of your writing in general, and just like kind of how you handle going through those tough topics. But I felt like that was kind of part of your healing in a way, or just that's how I interpreted it. But um, do you find that like humor is kind of like your best way of moving past something that was hard oh yeah oh yeah I feel like if I get to the point where I'm joking about something then I'm like okay I'm I may not be in the best place still about it but now I'm in a place in my brain where I'm prepared to at least deconstruct because to be really funny you have to be really smart and really you know Mm -hmm. you have a, a deft hand when it comes to deconstruction um right you know a lot of you know if you think about some of the funniest people ever are out there, you know, and then you start looking at their biographies and their life stories. Them shits are sad. But again, they've like been able to channel, you know, what should have been in like a, a vortex of sadness, right? Into these, their lively performances or their lively routines. Um, so yeah, I just, um, I think humor is um, one of the things about life that like really help you get through. Um, I feel that way about food, you know, I'm a tourist, shout out to us. Um, And I feel that way about, you know, like things like sex, also music. Like there are things in this life that really kind of help you, like they push you to action when you really don't want to, you know, really don't want to continue. So for sure. What's a, you know, I'm a big music buff. What's your, on your playlist right now? On my playlist right now is Half Alive. Um, I love their band. Um, it was introduced to me by one of my good friends. Uh, I think their um, album that just came out recently is called um, Conditions of a Punk. And I love that album. I've been playing it nonstop. My sister is sick. Like, she's sick of me. Like, she really sick of me. She's like, bro, please listen to something else. And I'm like, no. So, um, okay, I'm going to check love, them out. I, I love their new album. Um, I think my so my it's hard to pick like favorite songs on it too but i'll say two of my favorites is like obviously the lead the lead song which is named after the album conditions of a punk i really love it it starts out really you know it starts out really cute with the piano and then like the riffs of the, the guitar come in and the beat Ooh, drops yes. and i'm like oh i love that um and then the second one is um um i think is i think it's called nobody and I already love this song because the way it's composed is really nice. Like I like 
I like some good like tunage, some good auto tune, like as long as it doesn't overpower everything. But I really like the song because it kind of illustrated my stance on like liking things, right? Um, the lead artist is like, just because I like it doesn't make it right. And I was like, thank you. What I've been saying my whole life. I was like, he just says it one line. And I'm just like, oh my God, like someone gets it. So yeah, <laughs> somebody's got to say it. <laughs> yeah, he just said it and, just, you know, sang it, but you know, but, <laughs> but I love, I love, 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 love their uh, work. Um, they, I think they released the album while I was still in California. I think it was like 2018, 2019. I don't remember the name of the album, but um, one of the songs off that album was Runaway. Just an amazing song. I love that so much. Y'all need to go listen to them. Give them some streams, okay? Oh, you know, gosh. Like, I'm yeah. sold. Yeah. Great, great band. Great band. You know. Amazing. So what's next for you, Clarkisha? What is next? Um, obviously, I'm going to you know be doing some more interviews and going to more festivals and um, some more like live book events. And what else? So eventually when things calm down, I will look into, depending on what happens. Um, I have a friend who's, uh, she's been, you know, eyeballing me. She's like, listen, so we got to put some presentations together for some adaptation ideas. And I'm like, okay, later though. Not right now. Not right now. I'm not ready. So, you know, she'd be, you know, she'd be like right here in my ears like, so are you going to? And I'm like, I don't know yet. We don't know. So that's a possibility. Um, another thing is that I definitely want to start working on my Western. Um, I've been trying yes. to finish that thing since 2015. <laughs> um, and I want to finish it. Like, it's, she's just been looking at me in my Dropbox like, bitch, you going to come back? And I'm like, yes, I promise. But yeah, I will definitely be hyper-focused on that because... Um, it's just something I want to do for a while, but also like I, I've since a, like from a young age, I wanted to do fiction. You know, I love, you know, I love the memoir, you know, I appreciate it, but I'm like, you know, I want to go to these other genres that I've loved for like ever. So definitely want to do the Western. It is going to be definitely an undertaking because it's going to require a lot of research um, because it takes place during the reconstruction era. People don't, and that's where the interview cut off. <laughs> but uh, you can learn more about Clarkisha and buy her book at ClarkishaKent.com. You can also follow her on Instagram at ClarkishaKent and on Twitter at IWriteAllDay underscore. Um, and she's really big on Twitter and really funny. So you should follow her, read her book, see all her content, buy her book. I think that a lot of you will really enjoy reading it. But as I mentioned next, I really want to share a really heartfelt story from one of my listeners, Danny. Um, he told me about his coming out journey and um, his struggle with his gay father who was not very supportive. And I'm sharing this because, again, I think it really gives a good perspective on what homophobia and biphobia can really look like, um, how religion can play a role in someone's life in their coming out journey. And I actually have some previous episodes, um, two specifically, that talk about people who grown up religious or they maybe still are religious and how that kind of plays into their sexuality. But it's a really interesting topic. I'm not someone who necessarily grew up as religious. But um, again, I think it's just really something that's important to learn and hear from others. So this story is called, I came out to everyone except my gay father. I am a 24-year-old Mormon from Utah, and in December last year, I came out to my wife and family that I am bisexual. I'm very lucky to have a bisexual wife and three gay little sisters, so my family has been very supportive and accepting, but I told all of them that my father isn't allowed to know. He grew up closeted in the very religious culture of Utah and felt the need to play straight in order to fit in. I have a lot of sympathy for him and what he's gone through. He came out to me and my siblings in 2016, and when he did, I felt a lot of comfort knowing he might know how I feel and how to help me. He later told us that he and my mom planned to separate on good terms after my sister was done with high school. This came to a shock, but I understood that he, what he was going through and tried to be supportive of their decision no matter how much it hurt. In 2017, I tried to come out to him as being bisexual. But before I could, he revealed to me the feelings he had about bisexuality not knowing that he was talking about me. He told me that he believed that bisexuality wasn't a real thing, 
and that it was just something that people said when they wanted to pretend they were gay or feminist. In his mind, you had to be gay or straight with no in-between. This shocked me that he felt that way and destroyed any confidence I had that my feelings were valid and that I could be accepted. I felt like I was pushed back into the closet. After that, I left to serve a religious mission in Chicago and try to fit in. While I was there, I had the chance to live close to Boys Town in Chicago and met some amazing people in the LGBT community. Once I got home, I started working with my father and his business. This was the first time owning a business and we tried to figure it out together, with the idea that he could retire eventually and I'd take over. We spent a lot of time together then. Over the next year, during quarantine, my sisters came out as bi or lesbian. I was so happy for them and comforted by how my mom and other siblings took it. But in private, my father revealed his feelings, that he thought they were just looking for attention or to be edgy. He said he didn't really believe that women could be gay, that they just hated men. Once again, I felt pushed back into the closet before I had the chance. It was around then that I met my now wife. She's an amazing woman who is open-minded and welcoming. She was so excited to meet my sisters and was the first woman I dated who wasn't confused or worried at the idea of being around them. After we started to fall in love, she told me that she's bisexual. It was incredible to me that I had found someone who could understand me, but my nerves prevented me from coming out to her. My father's influence was still there, and I thought that if I came out, I would somehow diminish her coming out. So I said nothing. Within a year, we married. We had an apartment and adopted a cat, and pride flags hung proudly in our home. About a year later, my siblings and I found out my father was cheating on my mom, and had been for years, even before they planned on separating. He was meeting up with several men a week, doing drugs, getting drunk, and having sex with strangers every chance he got. I found out that one of the men he was having an affair with was my coworker, a man he had claimed to never be attracted to. I felt betrayed and used. While I was working hard to make his company a success, he was sneaking off to have sex with a coworker many times a week. I decided that I couldn't work with them knowing that. I got a new job working in a mental health facility instead. I made the decision that I wasn't going to let my father's narcissistic personality stop me from coming out any longer, and I finally came out to my wife, who enthusiastically accepted it. I came out to each of my siblings who accepted me, but I decided I would not come out to my father. I will not tell him because we don't have that kind of relationship anymore. I still see him sometimes and we talk, but he's just the man living in my mom's house, my former employer, and I don't feel I need to confide in him anymore. Thank you to Danny for sharing this incredible story. Um, I'm so happy to hear that you've come out to your wife and family members and that they're supportive. And I think it's a powerful message that, you know, biphobia can come from all sides and internalized homophobia is really a bitch. Um, from reading his story, I, I got a sense that there's a lot of like patriarchal issues as well, believing that, you know, women can't be gay, that's just because they hate men. And it just like implies that men are like the superior gender. And it's just, it's like heartbreaking to hear that you can't really feel valid or confide in your own family member. But I just, I wanted to share this with listeners because I felt like, like feeling valid is such a hard thing as a bisexual person because you're getting told from all these different directions that it's not possible to like multiple genders and that, you know, that you're just doing it for attention. I think that that's something that a lot of us experience. I know, for example, I probably didn't come out for most of my 20s because I felt like because I dated men that I wasn't really queer and that I wasn't queer enough to really be bi which I know now doesn't make any sense but it's really stuck in a lot of people's minds and I'm hoping that sharing this story will help people see that like no matter how your family takes it no matter what they feel about bis bisexuality that you're still valid but thank you again to Danny for sharing I just it's really inspiring to hear your story all right, everyone, thank you so much for listening. Um, I'm so excited for the next episode as well. In the meantime, please subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, um, and please, please, please give us a rating and review. That's one of the things that really helps the algorithm, and I would really love to hear from you. I'm going to just keep asking, please, please, please review bisexual behavior. <laughs> You can also follow us on Instagram at bisexualbehavior. And if you want to follow me, I'm at talia.tatiana. I'm also on Instagram and TikTok. But thank you again for listening. Your support means everything. And uh, we'll see you back. Um, it's going to be a little bit earlier than a month, but we'll get you more details soon. And we'll see you next time. Okay, bye.